Morning, church. Am I on? Can you hear me? Yeah? Anyone else just sick of winter? Just done with this? So sick of this. God, God's had to give me an attitude adjustment a few times recently. But um, glad you made it out this morning. Just a real joy to worship with you already. Uh, just coming back to that men's conference, I want to encourage you guys. I know many of you never been to something like that before. Um, a group of us went last year, and a couple of the guys, I know it was a really pivotal experience for them. And there were some real breakthroughs happened in the lives of some of the guys in the church here. So I would just encourage you uh, to consider coming out on that weekend with a group of guys. I think it'll just be well worth uh, your while. This morning, we're in part four of uh, a series going through this little book that we have near the end of our Bible called the book of James. Uh, James is all about showing us what real religion is like. Real religion. Because, I mean, God knows there's a lot of fake, false, empty religion out there, isn't there? Uh, I, mean, I mean, you just say the word religion. You ever tried that? Just sucks the air right out of the room. There's nothing that'll bring a conversation to a halt or make an interaction more awkward than just bringing up religion. In fact, I found it's a great way to get a telemarketer off the phone. If they just won't stop talking to you, just bring it up and, and, and they'll, they'll go away. Um, we know that there's a lot of bad religion out in the world. James knew that too. Some of you, you grew up in a church where, you know, you came and you saw a lot of people do, going through the motions, saying the prayers, doing the rituals, and then, you know, checking the church box, they went and you saw a different person the rest of the week. We've all seen a lot of hypocrisy out there, false religion. We want to know what real religion looks like. That's why James wrote this book. What does it look like to live out genuine faith? He said in uh, chapter 1, verse 26, talking about false religion, those who consider themselves religious and yet don't keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. It's empty. It's powerless. He says, I, I want to spare you from powerless, empty, false religion. I want you to know what real, authentic faith looks like. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So this morning, the, the text we're going to look at here, if you've got your Bible, open to James chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 13. He's going to show us kind of one really important aspect of what real religion looks like. Uh, turn to James 2. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. If you go to the Welcome Center afterwards, we'd love to hand you a Bible. We think everyone ought to have one and, um, and, and be reading one. James uh, 2, verse 1. This is his big point. He's going to unpack why he says this, but this is kind of his directive for us this morning. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Maybe your version says, must not show partiality. This is his big idea that we're going to talk about this morning. James is saying, followers of Jesus, Christians, don't discriminate, don't withhold love or mercy or grace or care or ministry to anybody because of who they are. 
because of their external appearance. In fact, literally in the Greek, what he said here is that uh, believers in Jesus must not have faith that receives the face. Kind of faith that judges people by the cover. Judges people by their external external appearance. Um, So he's going to talk about favoritism here. What it is, how we can avoid it, why we should avoid it. There's there's many different forms of favoritism, and we're going to talk about just kind of three in particular this morning. Why? Why should we who know Jesus, who follow Jesus, not show favoritism? This is what we're going to see this morning. It's an important point. Favoritism is a false reflection of our Father. It's a false reflection of the nature and the character of God our Father. You know, it's no accident that when he wanted to talk about, to kind of show us what real religion looks like, he talked about how we treat widows and orphans, kind of the lowliest of society, the ones that the world kind of overlooks, neglects, forgets. Um, it's, it's no accident that, that James uses that as an example because that's a theme we see right from the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, when God first gave the law to his people, he, he formed a people, the people uh, of Abraham, of Israel, and he gave them his laws for them to live by that would lead to good living. And, and he said, defend the oppressed. Look after the widow. Look after the orphan. And we see this time and time again. And so James is just kind of picking up on this idea that is so dear to God's heart. We see this in Isaiah chapter 10, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. God is, God wasn't impressed, I guess, with what he saw was the false religion of his people. And he kind of, he's got some hard words for them. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings to me. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, your Sabbaths, your convocations, all your rituals, all your assemblies. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all my being. Woo. He's saying, you guys don't understand what I'm really looking for. You think I'm impressed with those things. And he says, I'm not impressed with those things. That's not what I'm really looking for from you. That's not the sacrifice I want from you. He goes on in verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. Now he's going to tell him what he does want. Verse 17, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. There you have it. From the lips of God, what does he want from us? That we would look after the widows and the orphans in their distress. That's, the sac- that's real religion according to God. Why? Why is that so important to him? Because, well, that's what God is like. That's what God is like. Verse uh, verse 5 of Psalm 68 says this. Tells us what God is like. This is how God is described. God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. 
God cares about widows and orphans. That's who God is. And, and I don't think it's any accident that when James revisits this with us, he, he, he calls God, uh, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. He could have called God many things, but, but he chooses to remind us that God is our, say it, Father. God is our Father. Um, I think what James is saying is you belong to a new Father, so live like the Father. We've all been adopted. When, when we receive Jesus Christ into our life as Lord and Savior by putting our faith in him, we received God as our father. We were adopted into the family of God. This is what John says, John 1 verse 12, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. This is the good news. We, we weren't accepted by God because of our own efforts, or our own, our own merit, but simply by receiving Jesus through faith, we were adopted by God and became his, his children. That's good news. Um, I think what, what James is saying is you've got a new father, now start to live like a father. You're a child of God, now start to live like you're a child of God. <clears throat> Grow in his likeness. You know, people that have never met me before, I've had people come up to me and go, you're Art Hildebrand's son. Now some of you have met my dad. And you know exactly what I'm going to look like in 30 years. And it ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. <clears throat> I mean, the, you're Art Hild Now, how did they know I was Art Hildebrand's son? They, they, didn't, they didn't ask for my birth certificate. Oh, there it says, I look like my dad. They knew who I belonged to. They knew who my father was. So, so, so James is saying, you belong to the father, so be like the father. In the way you act, behave, speak. So the first thing we need to do is we need to look to the character of God. Because you can't know how to please God unless you know God. You can't know how you ought to live until you know what God is like. You can't know how to please Rusty unless you know Rusty. Like if some of you in wanting to do something really, like give me a birthday present on May 19th. Give you a minute to write that down. May 19th. No one's writing it down. I just, just write it down. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I want to make Rusty happy. Okay, I'm going to get Rusty something. You came and you put this gift in my hands and you excitedly watched as I opened it and it, was, and it was a Garth Brooks CD. I would look at you and go, you don't know me. You came and you got me a set of downhill skis and you were excited. I would say, you don't know me. If you came and you gifted me a 50-piece ratchet set, I would say, you don't know me. I don't want this. Right? Um, in fact, for, for you life groups that are using the sermon-based discussion guides in your life group, the first question this last week was, what's the worst gift you've ever received? And so in my group, I was sharing how uh, back when I was maybe 15 years old, my parents as the big, my big Christmas present, and I was young enough to still be really excited about that. What's that box under the tree? And I opened it up on Christmas Eve, and it was a chessboard. I never, ever once 
said, I would like a chess board. I've never played chess. I've never shown any interest in chess. I looked at this thing and I said, why? 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 You don't know me. I mean, if you want to please someone, you got you to know who they are. You got to know their character, their interests. You gotta, if you want to please God, you got to know God. The heart of God, over and over again, is represented in those words, widows, orphans. Looking out for the weak and the impressed. Giving attention to the neglected. God doesn't show favoritism, as we'll see. And so James is saying, if we're his children, we shouldn't show favoritism either. Uh, what does favoritism look like? And there's many different forms. I just want to kind of highlight three here that I think come from these next verses we're going to look at. I think the first uh, form of favoritism he's going to talk about is, is favoring people based on power and position. And privilege. If you go on here in verse 2 to 4 of, of James 2, he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting, you know, you're having a church service. Someone comes in wearing a fine, uh, or a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Obviously, this sort of thing was happening. Um, they were judging people, assigning people different values, treating them differently based on different criteria. Who knows? Their, their wealth, their, their worldly status, their profession, maybe their looks their personality, their popularity. Why, why do we show favoritism in the direction of power and wealth and privilege and position? Why do we do that? And this happens all the time. I mean, even in, even in the church, it wasn't that many hundred years ago, this is a picture of a, a box pew. You used to be able purchase, to purchase like the box seats at church. Wouldn't that be nice? If, if you could get the box seats, had a little mini fridge, you know, and a personal attendant, right? This used to happen in church. You can still find them in some churches. So the wealthier amongst would like to show their prominence by buying a big area at the front. Notice the front, not the back. I think now the, the expensive seats are at the back. At the front where they could be seen, um, they would buy these, they would pay for them, they were custom built by the wealthy families in the church. They actually would deed them to their kids as real estate. They'd be passed on in the family, and when one became available, there was lots of fights in the church over who was going to get that prominent pew, because that was a bit of a status symbol in the church. And man, I would have loved to have been there on a Sunday when the preacher preached on James 2. How did that go? You know, but honestly, we have to ask ourselves, we, I feel it, I feel the pull to favor, to be partial based on power and position. Ooh, the doctor came to church. Ooh, doctor. Right? We give special attention and focus, and, and then maybe there's 
gimpy Joe from low-income housing who comes in and is received maybe very differently than the doctor who comes to visit. Why do we favor based on power and, and position? And, and I think it's because often we're looking, at, looking for what we can get from someone. We're looking for some advantage from others. I mean, we, we all remember back in our school years on the playground, right, where you had to be divided into baseball teams. You remember this? You're a little too young. I, mean, I don't think they do this in school anymore because no, no one wants to hurt anybody's feelings. So, you know, you can't divide. But you, you know how it used to be when the world was real and raw, you know, back in the 80s. You had two captains, right? If, and maybe you remember being the captain. And, and, and what was your strategy? Huh? To pick the best. I want the best on my team. Why? I want to win. I want some advantage. And so one by one they were picked until the only ones that were left were like Chubby Charles and Gimpy Joe and some of you, you, you remember that painfully because you were one of the last people picked, right? That was some of you. Um, we sometimes are looking for what we have to gain or some advantage we have in relationship with us. Maybe it's security or maybe it's honor by association. Somehow the honor, the privilege of this person becomes mine by association with this person. And for me to associate or give attention to that person isn't going to gain me the same honor, the same prominence, a great reference when I want to go and apply for that better job or whatever it might be. I mean, this takes so many different forms. We're tempted to do this. As a pastor, when you're dealing with issues, it's so easy for the thoughts to go through your mind, you know, to, to measure people by their prominence or their power in the church or the, the wider family they're connected to or, oh, is this person more, are, are they, I don't know what people give. Are, are, are they a good giver? It's easy to kind of give more attention to those we feel have more to give to us. James says, don't do that. It's easy to do it in church. You do it in school. There's that pressure to be in the in-group. You got to work hard. You maybe got to step on other people in order to be in the in-cool group up there because if you're in that group, there's some sort of honor reflects well on me. And so we give undue attention and we favor people. This takes so many different forms. I, I remember as, as a kid, my dad and I won a contest uh, in, our, in our local grocery store to go and, and attend Joe Mullen's birthday party. Any, any old hockey fans here that remember Joe Mullen? No? You of you? Joe Mullen? Oh. Joe Mullen? Oh. Okay. And here I was so excited to tell you went to Joe Mullen's birthday party, and you're like, I don't know who Joe Mullen is. I mean, he, he was one of the greatest hockey players in the 80s and the Calgary Flames, and I was a kid. I was a big Flames fan. It was so excited to go to Joe Mullen's birthday party, and there were other Calgary Flames there. And I don't know how many times I've told the story of going to Joe Mullen's birthday party. I've never told, kind of told the story of going to anyone else's birthday party. You know, kind of that strange kid in class going to their birthday party. I never recounted that story. 
I mean, if, if you were invited to a party on the same night, a, a party for Mark Shifley and Gimpy Joe from low-income housing, which birthday party would you go to? Why? Right, right. I think we would be pulled to go to the direction of greater power, privilege, honor. Uh, Jesus, I wonder what Jesus would do. I think I know what Jesus would do. I think Jesus would go to Gimpy Joe's birthday party. I think he would. I think, he, I think he'd be sitting on the ratty couch eating stale Cheetos. There. Because this is, this is the Jesus we see in the Gospels. The one who goes to the outcast, the down and out, the ones that the world neglects and loves them and gives himself fully to them and parties with them and is concerned for them and loves them and serves them. That's our Jesus. You see it throughout the Gospels. Jesus seeks out the lowly in order to love them and serve them. That's our Jesus. So James continues, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are, not, uh, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And, and he's essentially saying, don't show favor towards power, privilege, or wealth, or anything like that. Why? Because God chose you, and you weren't awesome. Can I tell you that this morning? Are you okay with me telling you you're not awesome? Isn't it good news that God didn't choose us because we were awesome? Because if, 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 if you enter God's favor because you're awesome, then you've got the burden of staying awesome to stay in his favor. Isn't it great that we don't have that burden? God didn't choose us because of anything we were, anything we had to offer him. Ooh, I want them on my team. No. God didn't choose us because of anything we could offer him, anything we were, but because of who he is, right? God is love. Had nothing to do with you. Had everything to do with God because God is love. God is merciful. He wasn't interested in what he had to gain. He was interested in what he had to give to those who are poor and lowly and to the rich. I mean, I don't want anyone to hear here like, well, he's pitting the poor against the rich. We should side with the poor and not the per person of means. Some people will do that. And, then, and, and, and they will favor the lowly. And, and God never favored the lowly. He Jesus never favored the lowly. I mean, he partied with the lowest, the outcasts, the prostitutes, he, the tax collectors. He partied with the Pharisees. With the upper echelon, he loved everybody equitably because he is love. He never discriminated in how he treated people. So James is saying, care just as much for people who can't offer you any advantage as you would for those who are worthy in the eyes of the world. I think maybe this is why James talks about the widows and the orphans. I mean, if you think back in those days, 
Who, who were the two categories of the people that just were the easiest to neglect and had the, and had the least to offer you in return? Well, it's probably the widows and the orphans. I mean, a widow, it's not like today where, where I mean, maybe you got life insurance, you got, you got social welfare. I mean, to be a, a widow in those days was essentially to be on the margins and to be destitute and to be at the mercy of those around them. They had nothing to offer in the worldly sense of the word. And same with orphans. I mean, it, it, it wasn't back then like it is today where you can bring, I mean, God bless those who adopt and who foster. God bless you. There need to be more people that do that. But, but just think even back then, like today there's some government assistance to help you with that. There was, there, there, there was no government assistance. There wasn't a monthly check to help to look after a foster kid or an orphan. There was no help. They were simply a burden. They were a drain on resources. And James says, help them. And the early church embodied this. And I mean, we have accounts of the early church when they were persecuted by, in the Roman Empire. On the same days that they were being torn apart by lions in the Colosseum, there were other Christians sitting in a fishing boat with the net under the bridge on the Tiber River in Rome and it was a regular occurrence on this bridge for women who, uh, families that had unwanted children that were born because they were pretty unsophisticated in their, in their abortion methods back then. They had to wait till the child was born before they discarded of the child. So the child would be born, and then they would come to the bridge, and they would throw the newborn into the water because they didn't, they couldn't, they thought, or they wouldn't look after this child. This child was a drain. This child was a burden. They would throw the child in there, and Christians with their nets would scoop them up out of the water take them home and raise them as their own. That's our DNA. That's the DNA of our father. Looking after those that everyone else overlooks. So I think what James is saying is, is don't, don't look at what people have to give you, but look at what you have to give. To one another. Don't play favorites. Treat everyone with the same love. So, I mean, we've got to ask, what would it look like to seek out and to bless the lowly? What would that look like? To seek out and bless those that other people overlook. So we ought not to show favoritism based on power and privilege because God shows us. Uh, secondly, and I don't want to sit on this one too long, we can also show favoritism based on family and friends to side and be preferential to someone based on your relationship with that person, the closeness you have with that person. There's this saying, um, blood is thicker than water. Have you heard that? What does that mean? That means that when push comes to shove, I got to go with family, their family. Kind of makes sense. I, and and I, I knew what the blood part of that saying meant. That meant family. Do you know what the water represents? And I didn't know this until recently. The water represents baptism. So what, 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 what that saying is saying is that physical ties are more important than spiritual ties. Physical commitments take precedence over spiritual commitments. Um, and you... James, James could have done this. I mean, James was the brother of Jesus. 
He was the brother of Jesus. And he never used that to kind of, he, he never talks about the fact that, that he had those family ties with Jesus. You know who he does call brothers and sisters? He's already sw- said it twice in the verses we've read. Twice, he's referred to his audience as brothers and sisters. Not because he had any sort of, knew them or had any sort of friendship connection to them, and they certainly weren't his brothers and sisters in the physical sense, and yet he, 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 he viewed them and treated them as brothers and sisters. He maybe remembered what Jesus said when, when James and his other brothers and his mom came, uh, sought out Jesus, and Jesus was teaching in a house with disciples, and they came and they wanted Jesus. And someone said, your, your, your mother and brothers are waiting outside for you. They want you. And what did Jesus say? He said, who are my mother and, and brothers and sisters? Here are my mothers and brothers and sisters. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. And, and, and he would go on to say even more difficult things like, if you do not hate your mother or father or children or brother and sister for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? What Jesus is not saying is that that you ought not to give special treatment to your family. I mean, family is precious. I mean, men, do not give flowers to someone else's wife on their birthday. You do that for your wife. You treat your wife special. You treat your kids special. What Jesus is saying is that um, your, 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 your family relations, your physical ties... Family or friendship should never be permitted to interfere with your obedience to God. Your obedience to what is right. Your allegiance lies first and foremost with God. So he says, I call you brothers and sisters. We ought not to favor based on family and friendships. And this was, in fact, the biggest issue in the first church. Acts chapter 6. The first problem in the church is that there were widows in the church and some widows that had connections, they had family connections in the church, were, being, were, were having their needs met. And the ones that didn't have the family connections, didn't have the right lineage, they were not having their needs met. That was the first crisis in the church. Acts chapter 6. So we ought not to show favor, James says, based on Family and friendships. But this, this last one here um, is, is really important as well. He's going to talk about showing favor towards people or towards oneself maybe based on moral superiority. Look at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The royal law. I mean, James would have known what Jesus had said when Jesus was asked, Teacher, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus said, To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. All other commandments, all the other law flows from these two. So what James is saying is this is in the kingdom of God. This one's at the top and everything flows from this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So he goes on in verse 9 and says, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Saying to, to, to to be partial, 
is a sin. It makes you a lawbreaker. And listen to what he says in verse 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking, how much of it? All of it. Hmm. For he, why? Why? For he who said, now this is God saying this, for he, God, who said you shall not commit adultery, also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. He says, I, I think what he's saying is, don't, don't measure yourself against others or measure one against another based on your sin, based on moral superiority. I, I think what he's saying, the way I picture it is like a, a big window, which you can consider God's will, God's law. And, and it doesn't matter whether you throw a little rock through that window or a big rock through that window or one rock through that window or 10 rocks through that window. What do you still have? You got a broken window. It doesn't matter how many rocks and it doesn't matter how big the rocks. You got a, a broken window. He, what he's saying is you're all in the same boat. You're all equally in need of the same grace. Christians, don't measure yourself against another or belittle another because you feel superior to them. So James is warning them against, I think, the sin of moral superiority. Because when, when, when we fall into that trap, we, we stand in judgment over other people. And I feel this. You know what? Mercy doesn't come naturally towards me. I hope, I hope I'm growing and I hope I'm becoming more like God. I remember uh, as a young man taking one of those like personality tests. Are you like a, are you like a J or a P? And I don't remember what they all, all I remember was there was one category that was mercy and judgment. This was, this was mercy and this was judgment. And I was right here. I was right there. Really heavy on the judgment side. Right? What's wrong with people? I mean, well, what did you think was going to happen? Well, now you made your bed. Now you got to lie in it. We want pity for me? And I've had to wrestle with that over the years. The sense of moral superiority. And, and James is saying, there's no place for that, guys. You're all in the same boat. Tim Keller, a great, great pastor, said this, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. He will say, I have worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That is the, the language of the moralist's heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. That is the language of the Christian's heart. Let me say it again. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. That is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. He's saying you need to know, lawbreaker, that you are only where you are because God has been merciful with you. 
You have received the grace of God. And we are all equally in need of God's grace, James says. And so he kind of wraps this thread up by saying in verse 12 then, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You know, the the gospel, the truth of the gospel, which frees us from having to measure ourselves against others, frees us from trying to have to gain honor or security or popularity or anything from any others. We're free of that. Because of the gospel, you have been freed. So speak and act as one who's been freed because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Speak and act as those who have been set free by God's mercy because you know that you are only who you are by God's grace. And then James closes with, to me, one of the most beautiful sentences in the whole Bible. He closes this whole section by saying, mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that. Mercy triumphs. Whose mercy? God's mercy on us or our mercy on others? Yes. Yes. What he's saying is they're connected. God has poured out his mercy on every one of us. This is what we're going to celebrate in a couple of minutes. When we take this bread and this cup, God has been merciful to you. He has seen your sin and your brokenness and he loved you so much that Jesus came and while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Not because of anything you did or could do for him, but because he loved you. Any amens? That's a great place to say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy, which brings me into your family which has triumphed over the judgment of my sin. And so as Paul says in Romans 15, 7, he says, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. What what James is saying is that the evidence of a heart made right by the work of God's grace is the mercy that we will show to others. If we know that we have received mercy bottomless mercy, it will flow through us to others. We will love without discrimination. We will be people of mercy because we have received the mercy of God. That's real religion, James says. Love one another. Serve one another. Give mercy without any discrimination whatsoever. Live like your father.